This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Darren Ravel is different. And that's not my words, it's his, but I'd have to agree with him. For instance, he hired a professional baseball player to attend his bar mitzvah. In college, he covered his dorm room walls with drink labels, and he was one of the youngest employees ever to be on air at ESPN. And no matter what, you're going to find that Darren wants to stand out from the crowd. That's why when he caught wind of athletic brewing, he was absolutely captivated. Non-alcoholic craft beer, I mean, what could be more different and against the grain than that? So in this episode, we're going to sit down and talk to Darren about his philosophy on life, how he became to be recognized as one of the top sports business journalists in the country, and talk about that career and what it's been like for the last 20 years. So we're very excited to sit down with somebody who's been with us here at Athletic Brewing from the very beginning, and also someone that brings such a unique perspective. So if you're someone that likes to conform and be like everybody else, well, this is going to challenge you. If you're somebody that likes to be different and maybe sticks out just a little bit, well, guess what? You're in good company. Let's dive in. All right, folks, you heard a little bit about Darren's story in the intro. Man of many wonders, many talents, all sorts of stuff going on all the time. Darren Ravel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mason. Yeah, absolutely. So I've never really asked this, but I'm really curious with you. When people ask you, what do you do? What do you you tell them? There's a lot you could choose from. Uh, I do what I do so that I can appease my brain which runs at the speed that it runs so it's a positive and a negative and what i do is i try to fill uh the space that i i'm just i i don't know if i was born with this or whatever but i always have to be operating at a certain speed so i create as many things as i could possibly create and be good at at the same time did you expect that answer? <laughs> I didn't know what to expect, but when I went through the possibilities, that wasn't one of them. So no, that, but that's not surprising either. So that's that's really interesting. So it sounds like you've always kind of been like this, trying to look at things in a different way and, and diving into things at first. Well, my father uh, was a niche guy himself, and I had a chance to watch him, and I think that kind of Uh, spilled over to me so he had a phd in biophysics and biochemistry and he also had marketing experience and he started a consultancy firm where by the scientists would talk to the marketers finally so in these drug companies the scientists and the marketers didn't talk the same language his consultancy firm came in and he had a bunch of guys who bridged that gap and i think looking at that niche made me realize that I needed to do something or at least start my career where I could be the best in the world. So how do I pick something that's small enough that there's not a lot of people in it and big enough or that it will become big enough uh, that I 
be useful and can get paid for it. And I found that in sports business. So that became kind of my first job. And at 22, I was the second youngest person ESPN had ever hired on air. And so the niche was covering the business of sports at the time there was sports business journal, which was a trade publication. There was sports business daily, which was kind of like a, a fax service, um, to talk about the business of sports, but everyone who's covering the business of sports was on the concrete beat. So it would basically be city reporters or sports reporters who were pulled by papers to cover uh, the stadium that was being built. And in the late nineties, that happened a lot, but there was really no one who was doing on the national level, covering the business of sports. 2000 comes around, you know, ESPN is, you know, just, starting to bust out with the internet and uh young kids have credibility in the internet and i was one of these young kids attached myself to espn.com and and was able to go on tv as well i mean then it, it it's like you were discovering a gold mine of possibilities of storylines interesting things to look at this was kind of before the age of analytics so you were creating the foundation in a lot of ways for that yeah for so did it feel like something that just had all this potential that, that wasn't being tapped into, or was it something you slowly were discovering yourself as well? I, yeah, I'm, I mean, what I was just, when you're in it, you don't really realize it, but what I did discover is that more and more people were becoming interested in it. So more people were reading articles, more people wanted me on their radio shows. I think, you know, if you look back at the business of sports, it wasn't until like 1991 where Sports Center started to report the salaries of the players when, when a player signed. And, um, you know, that, that showed that people cared. And at some point people felt like they owned these teams, even though it wasn't their, their money, but they owned the team because it was their city. And, you know, they realized that if they had to talk to people, they had to know what their owner's capacity to spend was and the salary cap eventually and other things that came along that if they didn't want to sound like a goof of a fan, they had to know the business of sports. So I noticed people casually being interested. And then, you know, over time, uh, I then went to CNBC after six years. I wrote a book on the business of Gatorade because I had always been fascinated with beverages. And over time, it just grew. And then you could really see it when when Twitter first came out. I was one of the first journalists on Twitter. And, you know, I feel like sports fans felt like they had to follow me because I essentially provided kind of the pop-up video of sports business um and and so that's how that's kind of how you know 2009 2010 i think that's where um i realized you know how big it was but i was ready 10 years in i mean you've seen such a huge shift then yourself you know this may be just more personal interest than it is you know the purpose of the podcast but i want to know like what were players focuses then because i now i feel like every star at least any name that you hear a lot in sports has so many business ventures that aren't just fly-by-night operations. They're they're really making a run at making these things work. And that's yeah, yeah. that's almost like, what are you doing if you're not doing that? I feel like it's cool, but it's like a, a good thing. Uh, what, I mean, what were, what were players focused on then? I mean, I think it, maybe it came in 2014 when Kobe, uh, who I'd interviewed pretty much every year, but, uh, you know, like he said to me, he's like, hey, twilight of my career, I got to do something in business. You know, can you can you let me know of some opportunities? 
sent him Harvard case studies. Like that was really like the first thing. And, and um, you know, from there, I think LeBron started doing deals and then uh, what deal did Kevin Durant not do? I mean, he's done like 200 plus deals. Nothing with athletic brewing yet. <laughs> we, 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 we said that, you know, athletes are brands, but I think certainly in the last eight to 10 years, they have become that. Um, and then it was just out of my conversation with, with Kobe, um, you know, that, that my tastemaker capital started, um, I, we, we had talked, uh, about an opportunity, uh, with a beef jerky brand and hmm. Kobe and his financial advisor passed and that then sold to Hershey for, you know, what, uh, four, four or five times, uh, what Kobe was going to get in at in six months. And from there, I said, you know what, I got to start my own thing because I would have liked to get in on that. And and that's really, you know, how Tastemaker Capital started. And all of a sudden, um, with my brother and his best friend gr growing up, uh, now now I'm also running a, a mini VC firm. And I think as the story goes, what really was the light bulb moment for Kobe Bryant was when he realized he could have made just as much money as he did in the NBA that year by doing yep. nothing and in half the amount of time. Yes, uh, yes. So that's, yeah, that to show the, the, the returns on some of those early uh, ideas and those early deals and with these athletes having so much access to capital through their salaries and endorsements. I mean, it just makes perfect sense that this is a place that business is, is gravitated towards and those interests have been coming early and earlier and more wise to these athletes. So it's, it's pretty it's interesting not, to see. don't need the cash anymore. I mean, it's like, as crazy as it sounds, you know, they would get 250, $300,000 for a production day and they don't need that cash anymore. So if they get $300,000 in equity, you know, they, they, they now want to lean towards that. I think for a long time, certainly in the eighties and nineties, like, you know, even the biggest stars would do autograph shows to get $10,000 because they love cash. I think it's the opposite now. It's like, please give me equity. I don't need cash anymore. And I think so. The, so the it, it, it definitely coincided with the athletes making more money. You know, you said you've been interested in this for a long time, but I, I know you majored in theater. How does that play in? What was that about? Is that just to be better at at, at the drama, injecting drama into these stories, or where does that play into the Darren Ravel story? Studying theater in college, I, I I really thought I could be on Broadway, and and you know, and 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 thought that if I followed that path, I could have done it. You know, I was uh, musical theater. I was in operas. I was in over forty plays in my young life. Um, I wanted to do it. And then my sophomore year at Northwestern, luckily I went to the place where, you know, if, if you, if you make it there, uh, you're pretty good, um, given Northwestern's program. And, uh, I just, I just thought about the career trajectory and what happens if, even if I make it six months later, you could be a waiter. So at the same time I was doing newspaper and radio and TV. And, um, you know, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go into sports, but I'm just going to have this niche to kind of protect myself so I don't have to toil in the small markets. And, um, you know, so I, I gave up theater uh, as as a life, but, you know, I still sing in the shower in the car. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I'd argue, I don't know, would you call any of your Twitter theater in a way? 
Well, it's being being on air and being ready to be on air and composing yourself. And when I was, you know, 22 and I got, you know, February of, of uh, 2001, when I was, uh, you know, sitting across from Kenny Main on SportsCenter um, and I and I performed really well. I, I don't know if I would have gotten through that um, or how scared I would have been had I not been a, a theater major. That's a great point. And what that reminds me of is a story you've shared many times, like this theme of, I don't know if it's an obsession or just the desire to be different in a lot of spaces you're in, just in, in, in kind of leaning into being different. I imagine you were probably one of the only people at ESPN, not only the one of the youngest, but probably the only one that majored in theater. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I love being different. You know, that's that's something that now as a parent of three kids, I try to try to explain that, um, especially in this world of social media um, that I'm a part of, uh, conforming seems like, uh, you know, that's the easiest way to, to be. Um, and for me, I, I mean, I, I say not conforming and I've always been this way. Um, I, I, I go back to fifth grade when all of us were collecting stickers and uh, I decided I was going to collect only one type of sticker in my entire book. Um, Kind of had some serial killer vibes because (laughs) people would say, let me see your stickers. And it was like 19 pages of fuzzy armadillos. Um, But, but, but who else would, would talk about a stick? Oh, Darren. Yeah. He's the one who just has one type of sticker, fuzzy armadillos, you know? So um, I, 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 I loved being different very early on. And, um, where do you think that came from? Uh, I think I was different and my parents just said, go, um, <laughs> and, and that's how it was. And then I think it was like kind of nature nurture. Sometimes it was just what happened. You know, I realized that I sucked at sports faster than my, my, the people in my grade. And that enabled me to say, I love sports so much. I'm going to become a journalist. So at 11, I had, I published a baseball magazine once a month, sold it for a dollar in my, in my uh, middle school. And, you know, so I was doing journalism, you know, back then we didn't have YouTube or social media where you could really practice and get things out there. So I just got it out there and pretty much it was just me and my, my Apple IIe and my, my print shop and, you know, uh, but but that really at each stage, it kind of got me going. So, um, yeah, it's it's always about being different. And and it's the same way. I, I mean, I think there's so much protection in being different. Being the same is uh, is a much harder life than being different. If you're different um, and people and you stand out, uh, whether people love you or hate you, as long as it's passionate, uh, you're in good shape. You don't want to be down the middle and like everyone else that's that you that you you will not be successful that way that's really interesting and i want to ask a few more questions but there was another story i love your stories by the way and we're going to dive into that but tell us about the one story i think it was in college where you covered your wall in snapple labels to be different what was that about I mean, I started dreaming about what I should have on my freshman dorm wall. Because that's like a thing, um, what you put on yeah. your wall. Right. So I, I, I started thinking about it at the start of my senior year. Um, and I was like, you know what? I have a Snapple every day. I'm just going to get get tons of Ziploc bags and pull off the label. And I'm going to make wallpaper Snapple. 
Um, the timing, just so you know, which makes sense is, you know, I'm in Long Island. Um, Snapple was huge there. I think they were out of Long Island, actually. And um, the, the Snapple convent, there was a Snapple convention. I met Wendy, the receptionist. Hi from Snapple. Um, I tried their new flavor, the, the cantaloupe flavor, which is limited edition. And, you know, I just listen uh, as someone who's different. I, I want to be identified as different. So when you open the door to my dorm room and you see this guy in, uh, you know, looping the tape around and and putting uh, uh, Snapple labels up like bricks on the wall, it immediately says, hey, this guy's different. And I think when you go to college, you can kind of change your identity. Sometimes if there's not, the, you know, Northwestern from Long Island wasn't that popular of a school. So like people wouldn't know me. And that kind of scared me. And I said, you know what, I... From day one, I want to be the the guy who's different, and and that was the first identifier. Like, wow, this guy's got a little something off with him, and and that's great. And you were you were spying for people to say that about you. That's what's even yeah, more different. Of course, I of want course. people to look yeah. at me and say I'm just a little off. Yes, exactly. But but ultimately, those are the people that that all you know. Everyone puts themselves in these groups, but the guy who's a little off. The nerds want to hang out with them. The popular people want to hang out with them. And, you know, it, it, it was, it was, uh, it was great for me. I've, I've, you know, people have said is, is being different as it, was it ever uncomfortable to you? And, and it wasn't. And I think I just, um, when I think about like my own head, like I had inside my head, I had a confidence that who I was, was who I was. And, literally no one could shake me which is kind of weird when now you're a parent and you hear your kids say things and my wife is like that never happened to you you didn't feel uncomfortable and i'm like no um which is i i don't know how that happened but just uh is what it is yeah no come look at my snapple wall <laughs> yeah so you say that's one of the hardest parts of parenting is is trying to get them to be different. I mean, there's this pressure, like you said, to conform, especially in, I don't know how old your kids are. It seems like grade school where it's, you in a lot of ways, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be the center of attention to potentially face some really uncomfortable uh, ridicule or bullying or whatever it is nowadays. And and that, how do you fight against that as a parent? Like, how, what do you do? I mean, you, it's just the time in your life. Like, ultimately, like the nerd wins against the high school quarterback, like the high school quarterback, his height in his life is usually from 16 to 18. The nerd keeps going. I mean, the nerd gets more and more powerful in the end. And in the end, 99 times out of 100, maybe 100 out of 100, the nerd beats the high school quarterback in life. And so so that's one way to say it, you know, that you should you should be aspiring to be the nerd. I have a uh, I have a shirt from a company 500 level that make great shirts and it's a picture of my fifth grade photo with my big hair and my glasses they didn't make glasses for kids back then my glasses are like over my eyebrows um and it says nerd on it and um you know I I I want people to be proud of being a nerd um I certainly am I was back then and I you know I I think people should aspire to be that um, you know, the thing is that, you know, in every part of life, it is much easier to look at things differently, um, th than, than being, uh, a conformist, right? So like, 
uh, we can get into the athletic brewing investment, but like, you know, just the idea of going along with everyone, it's much harder when you're investing in cards, right? Like I'm looking at trading cards and people are doing the same things. The same scares me because then I have to go along with the crowd. If I make decisions on my own and I'm on an island and I can talk about why I make those decisions, I'm less beholden to the decisions of others because I'm not in the same market. And so I think, you know, in life, if you are going to be conformist and you're going to be a follower, uh, you have to rely much more on luck to succeed than if you're going to be on an island and uh, at least have people look at you and say that you're different. Is there at all a risk to being different for the sake of being different? Or do you think that more often than not, it's going to be a good thing for you? So, so the thing with being different is, just like I said with sports business, you can't be out on an island and not have people interested in it, right? So like yeah. when I'm doing like my memorabilia fund, which is another thing I'm doing, you know, I'll do tickets, but, you know, PSA, which grades cards, grades tickets, but I won't like collect food wrappers or, you know, so, so you, if you're going to be different, you definitely have to be on the edges, the fringe, and you can't be like all the way out there because there are people who are so different that there's no one interested in them. And, and, and you can't do that either. What do you do to make your kids think this way? Um, first of all, I let them do what they do. Um, you know, my sons are the only people, uh, in their, well, maybe one of five kids in their grade out of 300 that, uh, that play ice hockey. So they play ice hockey, street hockey, roller hockey, and they're hockey fans. And I say the majority of people are still NBA and, um, MLB fans and NFL fans. They live and die hockey, which is hilarious because that was the one sport I never paid attention to. Um, but that's that's kind of what they love. I think it matches the speed of their brains these days, uh, both watching hockey and playing hockey. And so kind of letting them develop, letting them be different, um, you know, to, to do the things that they want to do. I don't push things like, hey, you know... <laughs> I remember I was trying to like uh, uh, get the pan flute so that I could tell colleges that I played the pan flute because like only like 20 people played that in the world, including Zomfir, you know, I'm not overly pushing, you know, crazy niche things on them. But but obviously I'm I'm proud when they're doing things that other people are not. Well, speaking of being different, this is starting to really make sense why you were drawn to athletic brewing because obviously, I mean, come on against the grain at our core, non-alcoholic beer. I mean, you can't get much more against the grain than that. So tell us about finding athletic or meeting Bill. What was that story there? I actually don't know this story. So I believe Bill and I first met when I spoke on a BevNet panel about marketing and Red Bull. And I think maybe it was 2016 um, and, you know, he was still doing his hedge fund job, but he started to think about non-alcoholic beer. And I think he casually after asked me what I thought about non-alcoholic beer. And I was one of the first people not to dismiss it. Uh, I believe I said, 
you know, if it's good, it's good. There's, there's not many things that are good. So I think Bill remembered that came back three years later and said, are you interested at that point? Uh, we had started Tastemaker Capital. We had one investment, which was Vienna Roasted Chickpeas. Um, and uh, we met in New York. And I just started to do the work, a little bit of the work. And when I started to do the work, I'm a big data guy. I was baffled by how it was, uh, you know, 0.2% of the beer market here. But then like in Ireland and Germany, right, where you where you imagine the bars, it was like six and seven percent. And I couldn't understand that. And then diving in more, understanding that in Germany, especially they have craft non-alcoholic beer. And then the light bulb kind of hit me, which was, holy crap, like we aren't in a non-alcoholic beer partly because there's nothing that tastes good. And if something tastes good, that changes. Um, so, so that was the, the first insight. Um, and, and I also thought that, uh, you know, I, I was also hitting my right age, right? So like Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers say, says that make decisions and your life happens, um, often by your birth year. So I was born, you know, so Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs were born in the same year. They arrived to the, to college, which they ultimately dropped out from, but that's the first year that computers are in libraries. That's not an accident. I was born in 1978. I, I walked into college and say, why do I need email and internet? By the time I got out, I was the internet child and ESPN.com and ESPN's like, this guy's a young kid and that's what we want for the internet. I think in the same way, I was of the perfect age to make the decision about going into athletic. So I had just turned 40 when Bill and I had that meeting. Alcohol was getting to be an annoyance in my life. Uh, it started, you know, basically like I never drank a lot, but I was drinking enough on a Friday night, maybe two or three drinks that my legs hurt in the morning. So like it was, it hit me at I'm now of an age where there's consequence, where I feel consequences for drinking alcohol. And, and, I, and I realized obviously being a sports guy that there are social consequences and I'd love to have a beer uh, that's not alcoholic um, after I have a couple of beers that are, because at the end of the day, I'm a father at the time I had uh, a six-year-old and two four-year-old twin boys and with responsibilities, I just realized I couldn't do it anymore. And I felt and I saw all the people who were in my boat. Uh, I obviously loved Bill as a manager. John, Jamie, all of them uh, seemed like they were really good at what they did. And and the product was outstanding. And uh, that's why we we went in. And I have enjoyed and I have saved a folder of people who've called me an idiot and crazy. And, you know, I, I can't wait for the day when I push out that folder. I think Bill's probably going to try to discourage me from doing so, but um, <laughs> it, it, it is a great folder uh, that I have saved of, of all the, uh, you know, what a horrible decision this is. And, you know, over time uh, I've had, I've had guys who've told me that, you know, all of a sudden say they're drinking athletic now and they'd like to put it on, put it on the record that they're backing off of what they said. So I don't torch them, uh, you know, in the future. 
So judgment day is coming. Oh, judgment day is coming. But every day it comes because athletic is doing better every day. So I have more people begging for mercy and calling me, calling me a genius. But but it really is, you know, Bill and the guys. I don't deserve much credit for it. One, one of the f- things I've done is is whenever you've made a big announcement about athletic on Twitter, I'll, I'll go in and read the comments. And it's so much fun to read it to, from folks so who have fun. no idea about this world of non-alcoholic uh, beer and just this growing segment of the industry. And I remember somebody called you. It was, I don't know why it was funny, but they said, Darren, you're a non-alcoholic beer. And I, I don't know what they meant by that, but I thought it was so it's funny. Perfect for your brand, whatever it is, it's perfect for your brand, how predictable, all this stuff, right? And I can take it all. I, I get hate on Twitter all day long and I'm self-aware. I know it. I love it. Like, again, you know, feel passionate about it. Um, that's too uh, funny. And I think people feel, I think that's part of the success of athletic because they're the people who are passionate about hating it, hate it so much that they, when, when someone in their life comes in and says, I've had that, it gets them upset enough that they feel like they have to try it. Yeah. Absolutely. If they had no passion in their hate, right. If they just said, you know, I, I hate that and they wouldn't get upset. Right. Or, or when someone tricks them or whatever. Right. And, and so I think that the, the switch on people uh, has been faster because they have the hate for what they thought it was. Absolutely. That in fact, when I'm, when I'm sampling our product, our, our, our brews, I, if someone shows body language or says something that's clearly this is dumb or this is a stupid idea or there's no way it tastes good. I, I, I will follow them out of, of yes. the event to try it. I say, take it home. You don't have to even try it in front of me. Take this. I swear you're going to change your mind. And it's those people that become our biggest fans because they ha- their pendulum swings the farthest. Have you seen that shift yourself in culture the last oh. four years? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Because I've been putting it out there. So like, I don't think there's many people who don't know that I am invested in athletic. Um, and so, you know, I've put my, my face on that target and I think slowly the, the arrows are, are withdrawing. Uh, it, it is, it is funny. Bill and I did a great thing. One of my favorites, and I wanted to do it again, which was when those people came in with their vicious comments in Twitter, uh, we did like, uh, you know, I think it was, I think at the end of the day, it was a marketing play. So maybe it was zero. It was like, just pay shipping and we'll ship you out a six pack. And we did it to like, I don't know, 150 people. And, uh, and then I was offering on top of that, I'll pay for your shipping if you think it sucks. And uh, that was really successful because that was, you know, in the face of haters, the keyboard warriors in the, in their face and giving them the sample. And, uh, Man, I didn't hear from many people. I I don't I didn't pay one person back, which is just incredible. Um, so I I you know I I I like it's constantly going against the grain. Um, how could an IPA taste like that uh, without alcohol? Um, my fav my favorite is Athletic Light because uh, what people think they're gonna get is like a lot of the light beers that it tastes watered down. And then when they take the athletic light and they're like, 
oh my God, there's such complexity of flavor. How is that possible? Well, it's light, but that doesn't mean it has to be like watery like all the other beers. So, um, and and my favorite beer is is this Cerveza Atletica. I mean, that 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 to me is the Corona light killer. Um, and I I can drink those all day long. Once non-alcoholic beer becomes mainstream and as it is and isn't different, how do you how do you be different now? What do you what would, what's next for Darren Revell to, to continue this streak of of being unique and different? I'm the CEO of a canned cocktail whose whose only uh, differentiation it's the only uh, vodka canned cocktail on the market whose chief differentiation is spice. So oh, now we have, you have a whole thing where you know you have margaritas in a can. You have Bloody Marys in a can, but there's no other way to get complex spice. And so my company Kickstand, that's that's the next thing, right? Like I want people to say I've never tasted something like this. And by the way, I'm 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 the typical guy of the story that that I dreamed up to get to athletic. Like I'll have a kickstand, I'll have an athletic. Like it's not it's not the the sober crowd um mm-hmm. that 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 is part of this. And so yeah, people are like, well, isn't that first people say, hey, how do you do both? Like, doesn't that seem and I go, well, it, it, it's hypocritical it's really, or something. No, it's not. I mean, it, it, it's not. It's actually where so much of the growth is. Yeah. And like I said before we recorded, but I, I'll repeat it now. It's important for folks to know 80 percent of the people who drink athletic brewing also drink alcohol. So, yes, anyone who's sober, this this is going to be a product for uh, this is going to be something they can have, but also uh, the the majority of folks drinking athletic brewing also drink alcohol. They're just deciding not to wait either for that meal for this week for a lot of times Even a in month. The bar that day, they've had two. It's halftime. Yep. It's Sunday. They got to go to work on Monday. They're not drinking five to seven beers to get home. Like how many people drink to get drunk? As that age moves up, it's less and less. And and what's the couple things that have been unexpected, obviously, you know, COVID happens and, and all of us are drinking our face off. And, you know, after you do that for five weeks, you're like, oh, my God, I can't keep going at this pace. So I, I think COVID definitely sped up the, the route to non-alcoholic for traditional drinkers. Um and then, and then also something that I did not see is is the young crowd starting early with less alcohol. Uh, I would never have predicted that, but that it that is clearly happening. Where I turned at forty, people are turning at twenty eight. I have to be lucid every single day, including you know now that we do this ice hockey thing. Uh, you know, I I had I had a game last Saturday at six forty five a.m. Oh my gosh, you know, coaching the kids so. You can't exactly, uh, you know, get drunk. And then I have one of them as a goalie. So you got to get to the arena at six, you know, and and that means you got to leave at five 30. That means you got to wake up at five, you know, tomorrow I'm going to Nashville. Uh, I'm taking the first flight out. I have to leave my house at four 30. Like you, you know, you just can't, you just can't drink, um, you know, if, you know, the speed of the life that I've chosen in my brain also matches it with travel and everything else and kids and schedules. And I love speed. And uh, so in order for me to be efficient and live at that speed, 
uh, and be comfortable. I have to be, you know, completely lucid. I can't be hungover. I can't be, I can't be drunk. So that's, that's just, uh, you know, choices that you make with your lifestyle. Darren, I've got a handful of rapid fire questions I want to ask you. Okay. What are you most curious about right now outside of growing, uh, let's say, let's say outside of growing kickstand? I am most curious about, um, you know, the economy uh, and finding out, you know, where the bottom is uh, in a lot of markets and how it will react. Um, I'm not trying to predict the bottom, but I am always thinking about where it might be because so many things in my business revolve around timing. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that'll that keep you busy thinking about that. Um, <laughs> keeps a lot of people busy. Uh, let's say proudest achievement outside of your career. Let's put it that way, outside of your sports business career. Proudest achievement. Uh, my kids, one, and two, my commitment to the mental health space. Um, when I turned 40, I said, I don't want to just enrich myself. I want to do what I can. I'm not a doctor. I can't save anyone from cancer. Um, but I've had my own mental health struggles and learned and done thousands of hours of therapy. And my gift to the world is um, through uh, getting involved with the mental health organization, same here, and doing presentations around the country and I believe saving lives that way. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, what would you say then, considering all that and, and what you do now, biggest goal you haven't yet achieved, that that's definitely something you want to achieve? Probably peace of mind. Um, <laughs> I, th I, I think with all the speed, like I usually hate vacations. I can't lay down for a minute. I hope in my life at some point the hamster wheel will stop. I know I can't be retired. I know I can't stop moving, but I'd the goal right now is to try to slow down a little bit in the next five years. Five years to pump the brakes. Yeah. You can do it. You can do it, Darren. By, by, by 50, I want by 50, I want to slow down. Yeah, you and uh, maybe LeBron will be have will have slowed down by then. We'll see. He dropped 46 last night. Um What's a hobby that you have that folks don't know about or just something you kind of keep under the radar? Yeah, so 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 auction arbitrage, um, you know, finding things in auctions where they didn't describe the auction right, uh, the actual item. The item's in the wrong auction. They don't have a good database of people who collect. Um, just doing that, finding things, figuring out timing to sell it. You know, it's like my own memorabilia fund. I love doing that. Um, and, and I consider that a hobby and in all my free time, that's what I do. <laughs> all your free time. Yeah. Oh yeah. So the, the full seven minutes a day, you get to do that. That's yes. great. That's yes. great. All right. Well, well <laughs> in that day, that busy day with all that free time, what is a, what is a daily habit that you have that you either stick to religiously or, or, or at least aspire to? Uh, I do about a hundred, uh, deep breaths a day. I think okay. people don't understand how therapeutic a breath is. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a singer. So a deep breath, I think most people actually don't even know what a deep breath is. A deep breath comes from your diaphragm, not your throat. So it's, so you, 
it, my stomach gets really big, my diaphragm, and then, and then it gets, you know, at very, very big and then small. And I think if you learn to breathe from down there and get deep breaths, um, it is amazing. It has stopped headaches. It has, you know, allowed me to sleep suddenly, uh, take a nap when I'm like, you know, wired. Um, the power of breath, even though we do it every day, the power of deep breath, I don't think most humans understand it. Something so easy to overlook can do wonders. So you already answered this question for me, favorite athletic beer, and you said the Cerveza and the Athletic Light. Is there one between those you like the best or you just want to add a third? Uh, the layer, the superfood one is just shocking in complexity. I love that. I love that one. Oh yeah. That was a great, great collaboration. Well, on every can of beer, it says brew without compromise, but we, we do more than that. We try to do more than that here at Athletic Brew. We try to live without compromise, just not just brew. You can't do one thing excellently. You kind of have to just be this way. Uh, so we say live without compromise. What does it mean to you to live without compromise? To me, it means just go, go, go. We only have one of these. And uh, you got to try to accomplish as much as you can in work, uh, in life. Love hard, live hard, push hard. Don't regret any day. Um, I think it's live without being compromised. So don't you know, don't allow anything to stop you from living the day because we don't know how many days we got. Um, and, and, and at the end, whenever that end comes, um, you know, I, I, I'd hope that every human would say, you know, I got the most out of it. And that's, that's, that's what I think about every day, every morning when I wake up. Well, there you have it, folks. You can find Darren definitely on Twitter, among other places, but he's really well known there. And if you haven't already, consider giving Dry a try. I know there's not a lot left in January, not a lot of days, but if you want to see what it's like for you to not drink for a meal, for a week, for a month, whatever you want, find out more at athleticbrewing.com.